kneel before Zod. You can't go. All the plants are gonna die. I'm gonna take a bath. Bad dates. I'll alert the media. Boys, keep off the moors. It's evil. Don't touch it. The name's Pliskin. No more hangers. Welcome to Vintage Video, where we're re-watching the 80s so you don't have to. We'll be reviewing every major film release of the 1980s in chronological order, overanalyzing what you've seen and spoiling what you haven't. I'm Patrick O'Reilly. I'm Jesse Bayless. And I'm Richard Wells. And today we're discussing Chariots of Fire, released September 25th, 1981. It was written by Colin Welland, directed by Hugh Hudson, and released by 20th Century Fox in America, and I think half of overseas markets. Producer David Putnam discovered the story of Eric Little by accident in a reference book on the Olympics entitled An Approved History of the Olympic Games. He'd been looking for a story in the spirit of A Man for All Seasons and decided on this one. Putnam hired Colin Welland to write a draft, and at that stage, the stories of several of Little's contemporaries were added to the plot. He ran ads in the paper looking for people with first-hand recollections of the events and apparently touched base with Harold Abraham's family so soon after his death that he was able to attend the funeral himself for the scene that opens the film. This historical movie was based on the, you guys remember that thing that happened? Like, that's how he figured this out? Basically. He was just <laughs> like, oh, that's interesting. This guy didn't want to run because it was a Sunday and then he, and then they, someone else ran. And and they just asked and they people. Fast. He just asked people what happened, and yep. then he made a movie. That was enough. Cool. Also, as a result of the newspaper ads, Putnam was gifted a series of letters from the son of Aubrey Montague, which he then wove into the narrative of the film. The first draft, entitled simply "Runners" for lack of a better name, focused on three runners from the 1924 games: Eric Little, Harold Abrahams, and Douglas Lowe. But supposedly, Lowe refused the use of his name when he learned that his achievement competing the college dash would be given to a different runner. Not only didn't Abrahams finish the challenge in the allotted time, he never even attempted it. What? Yeah. Why did they... I guess for cohesiveness in the story, they wanted yeah, to keep partly the that, the same. And partly because Lowe was a lord and Putnam didn't like lords. And so he's just like, a lord didn't do it. How do you like that? And he's like, okay, then take my name out of your stupid script. The character of Lord Andrew Lindsay in the film is what remains of the low character, combined with a version of Lord Burgley, an aristocrat who actually practiced the hurdles with matchboxes in place of champagne glasses perched on each one. Welland was inspired to substitute the title Chariots of Fire by a chance encounter with the hymn Jerusalem playing on the BBC. Do you guys recall the last time we mentioned the lyrics Chariots of Fire on the podcast? Nope. Tarzan the Ape Man. Richard Harris quotes William Blake's poem and did those feet in ancient time, which was later set to music and became yeah. Jerusalem. The project was bought out by Muhammad Al-Fayed's allied stars and Muhammad's son Dodi was given a $3 million stake in the production. We last spoke of Dodi for his work executive producing Breaking Glass, which got a mini-sode earlier this season, but he's best known to me as the boyfriend of Princess Diana at the time of their death together in a 1997 car crash. Director Hudson wanted unknowns for all the runners to be supported by established actors playing the film's older generation. When 20th Century Fox offered to split the production budget, they included a condition that some American runners be added to the story, hence the addition of Brad Davis and Dennis Christopher, the full athlete cast trained in track for months prior to production. The film had trouble locating enough period costumes because they'd all been rented out by the production of Warren Beatty's Reds at the same time. The film received seven Oscar nominations, including for Ian Holm, director Hugh Hudson, editor Terry Rollins, and it won for Best Picture, Screenplay, Costumes, and Music. That is mind-boggling. It is kind of crazy. On many yeah. accounts. Right? The film was adapted into a stage play in 2012 alongside a very similar play, Running for Glory, which also chronicled the exploits of the 1924 Olympic runners Little and Abrahams. It's like, like basically the same story. Okay, Forgive me. Was it remarkable in any way? Only in that it had been previously made into a film called Chariots of Fire. I have to assume that they were like, oh, they're making a play of our story. Why don't we just do that and put it out <laughs> at the same time? I, I'm just so confused about this entire thing. Like, I they made a stage play because they made a movie, and they made a movie because... I don't know why they made the movie. I can't. I can't speak to that. I don't. I don't understand what's re what's interesting about this story. I think it's 
partly a you had to be there. You know, at least a you know a film like Victory. You know, you're you're coming into a sports challenge where, uh, you know, obviously nationality is important in this plot, but right. like it's symbolic of something larger. And yeah. I don't really understand what I this is symbolic of. It's a it's a similar thing to the jazz singer, where you have a situation where a person recognizes this greatness in themselves and they want to pursue that greatness but where it comes in conflict with their religion they're putting faith first and that's that's the point of this story that, that's that's yes. what this is about that's literally the point of this story yes okay that's really boring i don't disagree <laughs> but a lot of people do disagree and so i'm trying to temper our response to this film as best i can well i i the, the that religious aspect is one side. The other side is Harold Abraham's, who's which is still a faith story. Yes, it's still a faith story, but it, it's more of like your you know anti anti semitism, right? Yeah. Is, is is keep is holding him back and and keeping him like from being a more famous huge name. But even that, I feel like, I, is too understated. Well, that's what I was gonna say. I'm like, that's not like they don't even give any real examples in this movie of him being discriminated against, aside yeah. from people kind of saying some shitty stuff. The worst thing that happens is them trying to talk him out of the trainer that he hired. Right. It's not even necessarily people saying, no, you can't come in here, which like just one kind of a bouncer moment would have been enough, I think, to really sell that part of the story. Yeah. And. And while I don't disagree that the guy faced discrimination, even in the context of this film, I, I think that they could have stepped Showed it up a it? little bit. <laughs> Showed it at all? Yeah. I mean, I feel like the only the only bad things that really happened to him weren't even to his face. Right. But we'll, we'll come back to this at the end when okay. we're reviewing the film. Fair enough. We did mention in our Outland review that when that film ran over schedule, Sean Connery had to drop out of a cameo role in this film, but I have no idea which one. I couldn't figure it out. But it was a cameo, not like a full-time yeah. role. I imagine he would have been playing one of the uh, masters at the college. I was thinking it's either that or he could possibly have been, it would have been weird with the Scottish accent for him to be either the Prince of Wales or the Duke of Sutherland. Okay, but in, you, would, you don't think he would have been like Mussolini? Wouldn't have been, wouldn't have been no, that, that's character. definitely not a cameo role. If if the the indication that this was a cameo part is true, then then I would say, yeah, probably maybe Master of Keys or something. The film opens in the present-ish 1978 at the funeral of Harold Abrahams in a London cathedral. The hymn being sung in the school is Jerusalem, from which the film gets its name. It has been considered by some as England's unofficial anthem, hence the relevance to the story. Lord Lindsay eulogizes the deceased and calls attention to their mutual friend Aubrey Montague among the mourners. He calls back memories from their college days, and we dissolve to the famous shot of all the runners on the beach under the famous Vangelis score. The camera lingers on the various faces of the young men we'll be following through this story. I'm trying to keep up with what's happening in these yeah. first like like three scenes, really. Yeah. So because we're in the 70s, and Lindsay is, is the one giving it, the eulogy. Yeah. And he's recalling events, but we switch then like, over Lindsay, to Lindsay. You're barely in this movie. <laughs> yeah. And then we switch over to Montague, so like a younger man, but that's like that's what's weird. Yeah. Y you go from an older man giving a eulogy to a younger man then narrating. But that's but not, the, not same the same guy. guy. Yeah. And at, on my first watch, I thought that this was Little until I rewatched it. I was like, oh, no, that's not Little. Little's not even here. But then he is there. No, he's not. He's there when they're playing cricket. Oh, at the school. But I'm saying he's he's not at the funeral. Oh, no, not at the funeral. Yeah. yeah. Sorry. I, I'm still talking with yeah, the yeah, respects yeah. of the flashback. Yeah. We cut to the Carlton Hotel where Aubrey Montague reads us a letter he's writing home. Apparently, the letter is taken very nearly verbatim from the letters that were submitted to the production by Montague's family during the film's development. Eventually, he is dragged away from the letter by friends to an indoor game of cricket in the hotel ballroom. Worth pointing out here that nothing you see in the entire film is a soundstage. Every building, interior and exterior, was an existing location to shoot in. I don't know the rules of cricket, but one of the boys, a younger, aliver Harold Abrahams, takes issue with a play, and it seems like the rest of them are all ganging up on him as a joke, and eventually they're all laughing about it. I take issue with the fact that they are playing 
in like a ballroom right. and there's giant mirrored walls and they're throwing balls around. I'm yeah. like, yep. you are going to break something. This is a bad idea. You guys were mad at Jack Torrance last season for throwing a tennis ball at the wall of a hotel. Like yeah. this is so much this worse is, than that. I mean, I don't know I don't know what a cricket ball is like, but I imagine it's hard and they're literally throwing it towards a mirror. They're a giant floor to ceiling, twenty five foot mirror. Yeah. It's ridiculous. <laughs> I bet this is actually how you're supposed to throw a cricket ball, but it looks like a comedy sketch exaggeration of the lamest, most pathetic throw of anything ever. This whole scene is removed from the U.S. version and replaced with a scene at a train station where two background characters are heard swearing because the producers were worried that audiences would think a G-rated movie was for children. <laughs> like, have a guy say fuck so that this doesn't get G-rated. Needs to say it at least two times. <laughs> well, they're, they're not going for R. They went for PG. So one fuck was enough. We cut to a car pulling up to Keys College, Cambridge in 1919. Yeah. So now we're flashing back further. Right. We, we already, we flash back once. And then they're like, remember when we all started? And it's like, wait, why are we doing that now? <laughs> wait, where are we going? <laughs> it's just like banging on the dissolve. What's happening in this movie so far? Cambridge refused to allow the production on campus, a decision they later publicly regretted. So Eaton College was substituted. Abrahams and Montague head inside to check into the school for the first time. The head porter, Rogers, gives Abrahams a little shit for not doing his part in the war, but Abrahams pushes back insisting he would have liked to. After Abrahams steps away from the counter, Rogers mocks the boy's Jewish last name to his friend Montague. One thing's certain, name like Abrahams, he won't be in the chapel choir, now will he? This is the most outward anti-Semite thing right. that gets said in the entire That's film. That's what I'm saying, it's not even to his face. Yeah. Oh, and, and they're not friends at this point. They don't even know each other. Yeah. The boys are directed to their rooms for the semester. We cut to the freshman dinner as a choir of young boys sing. A man addresses the students. He asks them to seek within themselves the destiny of their greatness. In the next scene, the boys are signing up for classes and Abrahams ropes Montague into signing up for a Gilbert and Sullivan Society. Montague learns from one of the recruiting clubs that Abrahams has signed up for the College Dash, a long-standing challenge requiring the student to run around the entire quad between the first and last chimes of the 12 o'clock bell. In real life, this challenge was known as the Great Court Run. I guess it was copyrighted, so I had to change it. <laughs> In the school's 700-year history, no one has yet succeeded. I mean, yes, I, I know that there are institutions that are that, are that old. Yeah. It's just... That, that somebody must have started it 700 years ago? Yeah. And it's wasn't... like, this is literally impossible. Let's try it constantly. <laughs> Every year it became such a tradition, but no one could do it. Right. Our legs are too short, but maybe we'll evolve <laughs> to be fast enough. You can't talk about that 700 years ago. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they just go to jail. How dare you suggest evolution? We cut to Abrahams being escorted to the college dash starting line. Just before the starting bell, another student, Lord Andrew Lindsay, joins Abrahams in the challenge. Lindsay Anderson and John Gilgood, as the Master of Keys and the Master of Trinity, watch the attempt from an office window. Part of the reason that nobody's ever won this race might be because of all the dipshits standing in the way, <laughs> yeah, jumping right? out at the last second. It's like, get the fuck out of the way. You know what it reminds me of? It reminds me of like those, like, uh, like, bike races yeah the yeah. like bike bike and truck races where everyone's just standing what having cars like brush against yeah. them yeah i want to see how close i can be to this as it passes but despite wasting time crashing into each other abrahams beats the clock with Lindsay maybe a step behind him and both are showered in champagne no idea who would have thought i had to buy champagne since no one's completed this challenge <laughs> in 700 years <laughs> That's like, I'm going to bring an umbrella in case a meteorite lands on my head tomorrow. <laughs> Statler and Waldorf up in the window seem impressed <laughs> that the challenge has been defeated. Yeah, they're, Not they're, impressed enough no, for 700 like, yeah, years. Yeah, it, they'd have been more impressed if it was raining or something. <laughs> yeah. They're just like, huh, it's raining. Yeah, they, 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 make, they make some weird also, like, there's again, there's like a lot of oddly subtle and not in the forefront enough uh, anti-Semitic comments yeah. that are being made and they make them about uh, Abrahams um, but then they do this weird thing where they hold each other as they're looking out the window and I'm like are they gay? Yeah I can't tell <laughs> Like I was like it's like oh I can't believe he's Jewish hold me <laughs> <laughs> it was such a strange hug yeah, very odd we cut to a random field in the Highlands of Scotland in 1920 where Eric Little fires the starter pistol on another foot race for younger kids after the race, the kids swarm Little for autographs. People tell Eric Little's sister Jenny that he should be taking his career as a runner seriously, but she doesn't want anything to distract from her brother's church work. 
We learn in a speech from Little that he and his siblings were born in China, where their father was doing missionary work. Enough missionary work to father four kids. <laughs> but that it's nice to be back in his father's home of Scotland. Turns out, whatever local event this is, has one race left, and the same man who tried to persuade Jenny earlier encourages Eric Little to compete in this one. And this man will become his trainer, but I'm unclear of his relationship to Little other than that. Yeah. When he joins the race, his speed is majestic enough to strike the hearts of everyone watching. Vangelis' music comes back, and the running goes slow motion again. The next day, we see Little coming out of the church and reprimanding a young boy for playing sports with his friends on a Sunday. But then, it seems like he promises to play with him later the same day, which would still be Sunday, right? <laughs> or did I misunderstand this interaction? No, I, I, I think that, yeah, like he wants to cut the kid some slack, which again is totally counterintuitive to what happens later yeah. in the film. But I so guess like, oh God doesn't care that much. But later he's gonna care a lot. I, I guess it's it's more like like that he couldn't he couldn't do it before church services. Yeah, is but as far as I know, the Sabbath is midnight to midnight, right? Yes. I don't know if it's midnight to midnight because at least in the Jewish religion, it's sundown to sundown mm-hmm. as opposed to midnight to midnight. Oh, okay. So, so he's saying you I don't can know come out here and play games with your friends when it's dark out. You dumb. Yeah. At dinner that night, Eric is cornered by his father and that same friend-slash-trainer who encourage him to pursue the Olympics, reminding him that he would honor God by using his God-given talents. We see more shots of Little running in terrible rain, and he describes his love for the sport to a waiting crowd and compares it to his commitment to God. Back at Keys, Abraham complains to classmate Montague about all the shit he gets from people over his Jewish heritage. He's proud of his father for raising him and his brothers properly and pushing them to get into the best schools, and he hopes to carry on that tradition of greatness in spite of the Christian gatekeepers of world power. So what now? Grin and bear it. No, Aubrey. I'm going to take them on. All of them. One by one. And run them off their feet. As they head to their Gilbert and Sullivan Society meeting, we hear a chorus of voices singing, He is an Englishman. Do you guys recall the last time we heard someone singing any Gilbert and Sullivan song? It's going to be Raiders of the Lost Ark, right? Yes, it is. Raiders of the Lost Ark. Sala does a lot of Gilbert and Sullivan singing. It reminded me all of the Simpsons uh, yeah. The yeah. episode <laughs> with the... Sideshow Bob. And, yeah, yeah. Like, like they make... He sings the entire HMS, but before that, like they're, they're singing like the uh, Mikado... Uh, right yeah from school. it's a it's a treehouse of horror and and he asked him no he it, was, it was a full episode it was a kate fear parody fear. i thought that was a treehouse of horror no it was, no. Oh, it was a okay. full episode but he asked him if he had any like last requests and, and he asked for like the, the entire hms, HMS pinafore, pinafore. <laughs> very well i shall send you to heaven before i send you to hell <laughs> <laughs> it's funny though whenever i hear the lyrics of almost any gilbert and sullivan song i think of the animaniacs because they yeah. have so many songs that are to the tune of those In a montage, it looks like either Abrahams is transcribing headlines of his own achievements by typewriter, or, as I came to suspect, he's writing articles about his own greatness to have them published, and we see the articles in print. I'm not sure what's happening here. Uh, There's also, like, like a kind of a montage of, like, newspapers and photographers. Yeah. But the thing that pissed me off was there's a photographer with an old-timey camera getting ready to take a photo, and then the photo that's taken and then put in the newspaper it's from the angle of the camera that we were looking through yeah the photo- well, why is the photographer in the photo yeah that doesn't <laughs> that's, make sense that's not how camera didn't they work. do that in the macgyver episode like the gauntlet or something at the yeah, end she, like so. takes a picture of everyone and the camera's in the picture when we finally see the singers on stage we can see among them in the back row a very young stephen fry who was actually a student at the school where they were shooting and volunteered to populate the background of various campus scenes a group of runners prepare for a race when sam musabini shows up played by Ian Bilbo Holm. He seems to be an expert trainer, and he's here to see if Little is as good as everybody says. Early in the races, Little is given a shove and trips out of bounds, but manages to stand back up, get back into the race, and make up the distance to finish the race in front. And this is a real thing that happened. He was actually shoved out of a race and then caught back up with the people. And it wasn't even his first race that day, so doubly impressive. The crowd is stunned to silence by the feat, and Abrahams in the audience is amazed. Little collapses across the finish line, gasping wildly for breath. Was not the prettiest quarter I've ever seen, Mr. Little. Certainly the bravest. Get him up. After the race, Abrahams approaches Musabini to ask for training to beat Little. Musabini informs him it's usually the coach that makes the offer. When the right girl comes along, how will you feel if she pops the question? Hmm? 
Abrahams insists that an Olympic gold is within his reach, and Musabini agrees to at least evaluate the boy's prowess. We cut to a performance of Gilbert and Sullivan's The Mikado, and specifically Three Little Maids from School. Through his lorgnette, Montague directs Abraham's attention to a girl he's had his eye on, and Abraham's is somehow able to pick out that one of these three maids is especially beautiful, despite all three being masked in thick geisha makeup and wigs. Did During... you say lorgnette? Yeah, lorgnette. What the heck is a lorgnette? You guys know what a lorgnette is, right? You like a you like probably a... have lorgnettes, right? We're all very fancy, and we have lorgnettes, which are those little opera binocular glasses. Opera binoculars. All right. We all know that, right? No. We all have bejeweled lorgnettes. <laughs> bejeweled. Maybe bedazzled. <laughs> bedazzled lorgnettes. Bejazzled. <laughs> I have a, a bejazzled lorgnette. What does that even mean? <laughs> it means that you kept it in the wrong pocket. During intermission, he disappears to ask her to dinner, and Montague is furious because he's been crushing on this girl for years and never bothered to ask her out. Abraham's returns to announce the date is on, for later tonight, in fact, and to add insult to injury, her little brother is a huge fan of his. We cut to the dinner, and she asks why he runs, and he says it's a weapon against anti-Semitism for him. She laughs in his face, assuming there's no such thing as anti-Semitism anymore. You're not serious. You're not Jewish. Why wouldn't ask He tries to explain how he is kept from greatness by people on account of his heritage, but she continues to mock him. I do like the moment, though, where she orders her her favorite or the usual. Yeah. And he's just like, yeah, whatever she's having. And then it comes and it's shellfish or something. No, No, it's it's pig trotters. Oh, God. And that's her favorite? (laughs) Barely. (laughs) We cut to London, 1923, on the eve of the 1924 Paris Games. A train slows to a stop, and Little is woken in his cabin at King's Cross Station. We cut to a locker room where Little and Abrahams meet and shake hands before a race. Little wins the race, and when we see it replayed, Abrahams is watching Little pass him with a horrified look. Hours later, employees are sweeping up the venue, and Abrahams sits alone in the stands, dumbfounded, as his girlfriend Sib tries to talk some sense into him. Whenever I'm watching these races... And I was, it took me a few times of watching to notice why they're doing it, but they do this really weird arm flail yeah. just before they cross the finish line. I was like, why are they doing that? It's like, because they don't want to throw their hands and hit the cord because the, you know, as they're running, you have they're, to hit they're, it with your chest. Yeah. You have to hit it with your chest. So as they're approaching the finish line, they, they try to flail their arms up higher or behind them. Yeah. Um, but it looks so weird. It looks very it looks so weird, awkward, especially in slow motion. Yeah, because I think I think if you're watching the race, you probably wouldn't even notice it. Yeah, but in slow motion, it, it <laughs> like looks they're like they're palsied a, almost. It, yeah, I didn't want to say that. But, yeah, um, uh, yeah, it, but I guess it's yeah because they don't want to. They can't hit the string. I didn't even realize that was why they hands. were doing it the whole time. I was like, why the fuck are they doing this? And I guess uh, when the director sat down with uh, Little's widow to show her the movie that she was like, this is exactly what he was like and you've really captured his spirit, but I hate the way he looks in these races because he was much more graceful than that. And he's like, but we watched all this footage and we were so careful. That that was the one thing I thought we got right and apparently we got it wrong. But maybe she's just not used to seeing it in slow motion either. Abrahams confesses to the mistake of looking at his opponent in the race, which probably cost him time. I had to look for him. It's absolutely fundamental. You never look. He was ahead. There was nothing you could have done. He won fair and square. Well, that's that, Abrahams. Well, if you can't take a beating, perhaps it's for the best. I don't run to take beatings. I run to win. If I can't win, I won't run. If you don't run, you can't win. Abrahams laments that he's running at his absolute limit, but Musabini interrupts to suggest that he has some tips that could save him some time. Mr. Abrahams. I can find you another two yards. Later, he shows Abrahams a slideshow of past Olympic winners and barely losers. He reminds Abrahams never to waste time with a glance at his opponent. He tells Abrahams that the main problem with his running is overstriding. If he could get farther with each step, it would save him energy to expend propelling himself forward. We get another progress montage of Abrahams and Little training. Back in church, Little's sister, Jenny, is having a breakdown because he was slightly late to a meeting at their mission because of all the training he's doing. She still thinks the running is an affront to God, and he takes her for a walk. He tells her on the walk that he has signed up to return to China for missionary work, but before that tour begins, he will continue to run. 
I believe that God made me for a purpose, for China. But he also made me fast. And when I run, I feel his pleasure. To give it up would be to hold him in contempt. You were right. It's not just fun. To win is to honor him. He tells her that she'll have to manage the mission alone while he pursues the Olympics, and she wanders away wordlessly, like she's still disappointed, even though he's going to China for the missionary yeah. work. We cut to Little's girlfriend, Sib, enjoying what looks like a picnic with Lord Andrew Lindsay, the kid who barely lost the college dash earlier. He's consoling her because Little has set her aside while he trains to avoid the distraction. Lindsay reminds her that Little might be the fastest man alive, and that's worth training for, but Lindsay is comfortable just being a human. Sib seems more interested in a traditional relationship with Lindsay than ending up marrying the Flash, and they quickly kiss as they part ways. We see Lindsay take on a row of hurdles with a glass of champagne balanced on the edge of each one. Abrahams is invited to a dinner with the Masters of Keys and Trinity. They're obviously very proud of his running, but they object to his employment of Mr. Musabini as a trainer because he is decidedly un-British. Is he an Italian? Of Italian extraction, yes. I see. But not all Italian. I'm relieved to hear it. He's half Arab. <laughs> and then his face is like, oh, not half Arab. I'm so glad I didn't wear my monocle today. <laughs> uh, would have fallen out right there. Abrahams reminds these men that Musabini is the best trainer in the world, and for him to win and honor the school, he intends to work with the best, regardless of the man's country of origin. You yearn for victory just as I do, but achieved with the apparent effortlessness of gods. Yours are the archaic values of the prep school playground. You deceive no one but yourselves. I believe in the pursuit of excellence, and I'll carry the future with me. Outside the building, Abrahams is flagged down by friends to announce that all the athletes we've been following so far have been formally invited to the Olympic tryouts. At a train station, Lord Birkenhead is interviewed about the British athletes' chances against the American gold medal winners Charles Paddock and Jackson Schultz, who we just saw earlier in Musabini's slideshow. He assures them it will be a worthwhile contest. Abrahams is excited to see that Sib is here to see him off to the tryouts and promises to be here again when he returns. Little's first tryout is scheduled on a Sunday, but as we've established, sports are a no-no on Sundays. I told that crowd a fucking thousand times I don't roll on Shabbos. Walter. They already posted it. Well, they can fucking unpost it! Who gives a shit? <laughs> Birkenhead offers to talk out an agreement with the French officials. They're not a very principled lot, the frogs. But um, when faced with a stand like yours, one never knows, I might get through. This line alone was enough to set all French critics off on this movie when it came out. <laughs> They're just like, they said the word frogs. I hate it. Later at a party, we see Abrahams entertaining a crowd with piano skills, while in the corner, Montague composes another letter home, again taken nearly verbatim from his original letters. I guess the only difference is that he referred to his parents as like mummy, and they were like, that seems weird. I'm going to say mum. The team poses for a photo in front of the Louvre. We cut to the bell of a sousaphone filling the frame, and the camera turns to show the Americans stepping off a boat from the United States. Do you guys recall the last time we cut to the bell of a sousaphone filling the frame? Uh, no. It was playing some oompa music. Heaven's Gate? At the Danish Days Festival. Oh, in, um, uh... <sighs> yeah, what's the name of that movie? The Unseen? The Unseen! Ah, I did it! Nice pull. Okay. We see Paddock and Schultz disembark, played by Dennis Christopher and Brad Davis. We cut to a movie theater where the British team watch a newsreel about the arrival of America's famous fastest men in the world. And it's time for another training montage, this time with the American team. We cut to the teams arriving at the official tryouts in Cologne Stadium, Paris. Do you guys recall the last time we saw Cologne Stadium, Paris represented? Uh, was it victory? It was. This is where we saw the POWs tie the Nazis in victory earlier this season. They tied them. That was the happy ending. They tied the <laughs> Nazis. The tryout heats are largely in slow-mo with lots of Vangelis synth. Sorry, I was going to say, I'm, always, I'm glad that they got together. They tied yeah, the Nazis. They tied it. They tied the Nazis. Oh. Uh, it's weird. Yeah, so speaking of, the score is iconic it in is. that it's you know, frequently used in pop culture to... For races in to, slow to motion. To show a triumphant moment. Yeah. Uh, usually in slow-mo. Usually in slow motion. Uh, but the rest of the score 
is weird. I like yeah. all of it. I, I, but I, it's but it's weirdly synthy for a period piece. Yeah, which and is it, it's is also distracting to me. It's also weird because we had Gallipoli, you know, earlier this season that did the same thing. It was like weirdly synthy for a movie that's about running in in like turn of the century. Yeah, um, and I guess maybe that's just maybe that's just the '80s that they're just yeah. like, hey, this is the trendy music now. I'm gonna pair it with whatever movie. It doesn't I've, matter that it was from the 1920s uh, period. Yeah, but I think the music works better here than it did in that movie. Yeah, I don't know. They're, like it, it pops in, but it's not. Honestly, the music is not synthy throughout. It's only synthy in moments, and yeah. it's really distracting to me. Yeah, when the synth comes up heavy, it it. I notice it right away, and you should never really notice. But it felt more like the Thief soundtrack this time than the Gallipoli but, but soundtrack. But I think Thief worked because it it wasn't set. It was present day historically. Yeah, yeah mm-hmm. that makes sense. That evening, the athletes are invited to a ball. Birkenhead tells Little that the future king, the Prince of Wales, is here, and he would like to meet him. And Little reluctantly agrees to the encounter. At the same time, Little is introduced to the Duke of Sutherland and Lord Cadogan. And judging from the enraged look on Cadogan's face, this is actually an ambush. I would have pronounced it Cadogan, but everyone here says Cadogan. So I'm going to go with them. They are too proud to ask a favor of the French and demand that Little reconsider his decision. Again, he refuses to deny God. Cadogan claims that the will of a king supersedes the will of God. God made countries. God makes kings and the rules by which they govern. And those rules say... The Sabbath is his. And I, for one, intend to keep it that way. Somehow these men still think he gives a shit about royalty and remind him that sacrifices are sometimes in order to honor and allegiance, forgetting, apparently, that he has chosen God over them and is honoring his allegiance by sacrificing the contest. Just then, Lord Lindsay barges in to announce that if he and Little trade events, there is no schedule conflict and everyone just rubs their hands together and calls it a day's work. It's like, first of all, who let a guy just bust into this room with the future king like at random? He's like, no, 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 I got to talk to them. It's like, they're having a private conversation. You can stay out here, person who no one knows. Well, he is a lord. I guess. I, I guess when when, when confronted, uh, the door the doorman, when confronted, is like, do you know who I am? I'm yeah. a lord. It's like, I am the lord thy lord. Doorman. Doorman. <laughs> Are you a doorman? Yeah, to the sky. <laughs> but yeah, the other problem is uh, how simple this all was. And it's frustrating. Why did they drag the prince down here to argue with Little when a couple of athletes could have just traded shifts this whole time? Yeah. I, I like that. Like, it, I guess it was a power move. It's like, look we, look, we brought the prince in here. Yeah. Don't embarrass us in front of the prince. But this whole scene never happened in real life. In real life, he knew before he left London, he knew months before they got here that the event was on a Sunday and he went back and forth on whether he was going to compete. Yeah. And they decided that he wasn't and that they would trade months before the actual event. Yeah. I I find it hard to believe that they they schedule the events merely days before. Yeah. And this is the major conflict of the whole film? Yep. This is, this is the most conflict that we'll see in the plot. For little. For anyone. The most conflict for Abrahams is when someone made fun of him after he left the room. Well, I, I disagree. I, I, I think the conflict I think the conflict for Abrahams is uh one proving that he can win, but it's an unsatisfying conflict for him in the end, which we'll get to, why he's so upset when he wins. Well, spoiler alert. Um but we'll get to that. I guess sure. I, I'll wait till we get to that. Okay. Oh, so, but getting back to this scene real quick. Yeah. Because they announced it in the, the newspaper that, that he won't. And it does the cheesiest spinning newspaper headline. Right, yeah. Which I associate so with, just... like, Superman. Like, like <laughs> yeah. Superman just rescued, like, the Statue of Liberty from falling into the ocean or something. Yeah. And it was, like, a spinning headline. Superman murders innocent tobacconist. <laughs> Do you remember that sketch? <laughs> no. <laughs> The trade is approved and the press reports on the unprecedented switch and the celebration of Little's devotion to his faith. We get another montage of Sunday contests cross-cutting with Little speaking in church about his devotion. We see Montague not make the cut as a part of this montage. 
I didn't even know he was a runner, really, yeah. other than the opening scene of them running, which I thought maybe was just like school. Honestly, running. he's only in this movie because they found those letters. He's he was barely a part of the team, and he didn't have any medals or anything. He never. He, I don't think he even uh, competed on on the same level as anybody else on the team. Just before the official contest, Abrahams reads a letter from Musabini with some last-minute tips and a charm necklace, cursed by his grandfather's ghost. <laughs> or something like that. Before the race begins, each of the men are given little shovels to dig out their starting footholds. I thought that was cute. Yeah, that's, that's amazing. I wish that that tradition was still going on. I was like, oh, they're going to do a little gardening first? <laughs> oh. <laughs> because there was a scene earlier where they put a trowel, one of them puts a trowel in their in their pocket, and I was like, is he going to stab somebody? Yeah. <laughs> Better not get too fucking close. <laughs> is that something you carry during the race? Yeah. And if you fall, you just like impale yourself on it. On account of his racial heritage, Musabini has not been invited to the official contest and listens from the window of his nearby hotel room. In the final 100-yard dash, Abrahams takes the gold, and as soon as Musabini hears the national anthem playing from his room, he collapses excitedly to the bed and punches the top off of his hat, overjoyed. He refers to Abraham's in this moment as his son. Back home, Sib is informed that her boyfriend has won the race, and I have no idea how she feels about that. Yeah. <laughs> She's like, kind of smiles, but it's kind of like, a, oh, I guess I'm not going to be with Lord Lindsay then. I guess I'll be with this guy since he won his race. The Masters of Keys and Trinity learn in the following day's paper. Abraham's triumphant. Keys College athlete wins blue ribboned at games. Just as I expected. See, I'm, I'm calling it right now. This the, These guys are a couple. Yeah. They, they're always having breakfast together. They're yeah. always like talking about their days. <laughs> and these two are about as excited as I am about this accomplishment. They're like, oh, yep. That's well, what I figured. The, you saw their excitement for somebody doing something that hadn't been done in 700 years. Yeah. <laughs> acting like it's been done twice today. <laughs> we go from this scene to where Abrahams is really despondent. And kind yeah, of he's like, at a bar. Yeah, but but well, before that, like when when he's in the locker room. Oh, sure. He yeah. won't drink champagne. He's not talking to anybody. And to me, this is part of the conflict of for his story in that he won, but he didn't get to do what he wanted to do, and that was beat little. Right. He never gets to do that. But he also doesn't seem contentious enough with little. Yeah, but I I feel like the rivalry is between the two of them. Like it's a friendly rivalry. Yeah. But. But if at the end of the film it turned out that Little didn't know his name, I wouldn't be surprised. Mm. Because it's just like they shook hands in one scene and Little never mentions him at all. Like he never says anything about Mm -hmm. Abraham's. So it's just just weird to set them up as like, oh, this is like the epic face-off. And it's like they shook hands once and one of them doesn't even know the other one exists. (laughs) I don't even know who you are. (laughs) (laughs) That's That's definitely, that's the meme for this. That's the MCU meme for this is Abraham's is Scarlet Witch and Little is Thanos. We get a brief glimpse of Musabini and Abraham's celebrating in a bar, and then it's back to the games. When Little runs his race, we see Jenny in the stands, and she's excited for him. But see, I had checked out at the movie at this point, because I was all about Abraham's in this movie. Right, yeah. I, 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 I was like, I don't really care about Little. I care yeah. about Abraham's overcoming possible anti-Semitism. Yeah. No, I mean, he definitely faced anti-Semitism. That's, I mean, my point is not that he didn't face it. My point is that they should have shown more of it in the film. We also hear a reprise of him telling her that he feels God's pleasure in his gift. Of course, he wins his race, and a crowd forms around the runners as they leave the stadium. Sib meets Abrahams at the station, just as she promised, and we dissolve to a choir of children in church, and the camera pans across to find old makeup versions of Lindsay and Montague in the crowd, singing along, and we're back to the near present of 1978. It's a little confusing after harping on Abraham's Judaism for the entire film to be bookended with his Christian funeral ceremony, but he actually did convert later in life, which I feel like, then don't show the funeral, yeah, because the whole movie has been about him not wanting to be Christian and wanting to be Jewish. Yeah. yeah. And you included this detail just because you were there? Is that the only reason? It's weird. Yeah, and it, and it would have been nice to do without with one less flashback. Yeah, and maybe kick Lindsay out too because who cares about that guy? Like, he's barely in the movie. Why is he at the funeral? Despite Montague's presence here, he actually passed away 30 years prior on the same day as Mahatma Gandhi, whose film would win the following Best Picture Oscar. 
A closing title tells us that Abrahams married Sybil and became the elder statesman of British athletics before dying in January of 1978. We end with the same starting shot of the boys running on the beach. Actually, it's not the same shot. It's like a different take yeah. of the same setup. And, uh, and then we return to the classically referenced portion of Vangelis' score, and that's the end of our film. But So after, after getting to this point of the film, yeah. where, they, where they were, because it shows them running again, as you said, but it, it gives the, the actor and name credit. Right. I was like, okay, I need to go back and rewatch the first half of this movie now that I know- Any of their names. Every, every, like, now I'm absolutely sure of who everyone is. Yeah. Well, I have to Turns watch all out, of these three or four times anyway. Doesn't matter. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, so that's uh, that's Chariots of Fire. It won Best Picture. Yeah. Wrong. I mean, I was looking at the other Best Picture winners, and it's like, well, there's a clear winner here, but of the other ones. Yeah. I mean, there's there's probably a couple, but we haven't we haven't gotten to some of them because this is just the beginning yeah, of awards ex- season. Yeah, exactly. But uh, yeah, I I didn't hate it. It, no, it, I didn't hate it either. I just don't don't understand how it even got nominated. I, I I don't I don't really feel anything about it. Um, it 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 was it was a, a well filmed, yeah, <laughs> and and well performed movie. Uh, but I think a lot of it you literally have to be British to appreciate, because I think that there's a lot of like unspoken stuff that I'm clearly missing in this film. That has to do with the spirit of the country and what what this stuff stood for. And, and it's also a problem that I don't care about sports and I don't care about religion. And so those things are making me not give a fuck about little yeah. because I'm like, who cares that you can't play the dumb game that you wanted to play because your imaginary friend says you can't play games on that day. Like, I don't <laughs> care. Yeah. Like I said, um, my my total commitment to the into the story was Abraham's. Right. And once his story completed, I was like, well, there's still more movie. Yeah. And it's taking longer because they're doing everything in slow motion. Yeah. <laughs> but it's like, if you want to show me someone and say like, look, isn't this guy a man of principle standing up for his beliefs? Then I should also sympathize with his beliefs. And for them to say, well, this guy's standing up for this old book that says you can't kick a ball on a Sunday. And it's like, I don't care. Like, that's not a, that's not a principle. That's not like... That has no bearing on anyone's life that that he didn't play that game on that day. So I don't care that he's taking a stand. And he doesn't look any less foolish than the prince who's saying, just play the stupid game. Run. Just run over there. I'll just fucking chase you through this area. You don't even have to be participating in the challenge. I'll just chase you right when they start. But yeah. Chariots of Fire. <laughs> I mean, like we said, the performances are great. It's it's beautifully photographed, and I love the score. I love the score throughout, and it didn't bother me as much as it apparently bothered you with the synthiness. Yeah. It, well, like, the main theme is fine. The yeah. main theme isn't really synthy. It's just there's other moments where it's just, like, it it strikes me as, like, like Richard said, it's noticeable. This is I, only the second be. score this, this year that I've considered buying as soon as I finished watching the movie, which it was this and Raggedy Man are the two movies where I was like, I kind of want to own this score because I really like the music here. I I like the main theme, which you only hear at the beginning and at the end. Right. Um, the rest of it was when it when it wasn't when it wasn't noticeable, like I was fine. But then like the when I was talking about like the spinning headline, yeah, it's like it's like what is this? Like it's so out of place for anything. Yeah. I do have to say though, I was surprised having not seen the film before i kind of assumed that that main theme was actually going to be over the big important moment in the film instead of when they were training and then the credits (laughs) yeah i mean some would argue the credits are important but you're right they should have been on the big race but, but the fact the fact that it to me uh, having not seen the film always meant a triumphant moment. Right. Um, it wasn't over a triumphant moment. I also feel like the f- the film, just from a purely like staging perspective, doesn't put enough emphasis on which races are important and which races aren't. So we see Abraham's like lose a race and he's really sad about it, and it's like, 
was that the one? Was yeah. that the gold medal or no? And then you see the next race and he wins it. And it's like, oh, he seems happy now. Is he happy because he just won that heat? Or was that the big race? Is that the one that he's been trying to win this whole time? But that's the thing with the Olympics is is that you run the you run this race and that race. and then Right. You, you know, do a bunch like, of them. Yeah. The, it, it, but well, the tryouts looked like the same exact scale as mm-hmm. the official Olympics, which was weird. But that's also just a production value thing. Yeah. And I, I, don't, I don't even remember what distances were being run i know that uh little did the 400 okay because the whole point was that he wasn't sprinting anymore he was doing like a longer run than usual and so they thought he would get tired out before he finished it but he still won because he's a champ thumbs up or thumbs down guys one best picture i don't know i guess there's nothing inherently wrong about this movie but i'm not gonna tell anybody to go watch it and i don't really care to ever see it again i feel like i guess a reluctant thumbs up all right richard um i give it a thumbs up i i i as much as i was ragging on the movie i i didn't dislike it um i i don't don't think it's best picture of the year no but um but I, I didn't mind it. Uh, I was like, okay, this is fine. Um, I, I feel like I – what I want from a movie like this is I want to learn some history. But you don't because one of the characters isn't even the real person and they fudge some things because the, the, the director or writer didn't like Didn't like, didn't like reality. And so they changed things. So it's like, oh, well – and I guess I have to you have to do that with all biopics is you have to take yeah. things with a grain of salt. But, um, but knowing that fact – like that they just blatantly like no we're just going to say he did this i mean because that's like we need him to have more accomplishments yeah, in the film yeah it's like that was like say it would be it'd be like saying like oh this person won a gold medal when they didn't win any medals right. so it's like well yeah that's a nice thing to say i guess but it's not what happened and also not that it's super relevant but in the actual olympics we see him lose an event and then win an event when in reality he won the first one and lost the second one but obviously you want to end on the high so right I just want to thank both of you for your reluctant thumbs ups. Mine wasn't reluctant. So you can give it a thumbs so down. So that I can give it a thumbs down. <laughs> there you go. Because, yeah, there's there's really not much here unless you care a lot about running or England or religion. Then check it out. But what about Letterboxd? Where's this going? Oh, shoot. I'm going to pull up my list. Uh, I have it at 39. So I, I imagine I'm going to be much higher than either of you guys. Probably. Um, which uh, 39 puts it below Wolfen, but above Gallipoli. I, but I do like that it's right next to Gallipoli because it's yeah. like, okay, both these movies are kind of about running. Yeah, but Gallipoli had like so many more elements to it. Yeah, but there were elements I didn't care about that no. were frustrating because <laughs> it didn't get to Gallipoli. Sure. Well, mine's also next to an Australian film, but not Gallipoli. So that's irrelevant. <laughs> All right. I have this at number 80. It's uh, below Wolfen and above Kill and Kill Again. All right. I have it in 91, uh, which is probably the lowest I'll ever have a best picture. Oh, right. <laughs> but uh, it's right under Winter of Our Dreams and right above True Confessions, which we covered last week. It's very Winter of Our Dreams in that it's yeah. like. But I put that one ahead of, of it life, because there's some heart to that Kind of boring. Yeah. Like, not a lot happening. Our director here was Hugh Hudson. He directed Second Unit on Putnam-produced Midnight Express. With the exception of a documentary the previous year, this was Hudson's first feature film. He's mostly a director of advertising prior to this. He followed it up with Greystoke, The Legend of Tarzan, Lord of the Apes, and a bit later with I Dreamed of Africa. Writer Colin Welland, he previously wrote Yanks in 1979, but he's also known for acting, including an appearance as Reverend Barney Hood in Straw Dogs. The music here is from Vangelis. This was an early English language title for Vangelis, and he followed it soon after, scoring Ridley Scott's Blade Runner. Together, probably his two most celebrated works. He continued working on international scores through his passing in May of this year as a result of complications from COVID-19. And I promised listener Ian I would mention Mr. Bean's performance of the score for this film at the 2012 London Olympics. Was it the opening ceremony? Yeah. And he sits down at the piano and he's just dum 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 dum. Yeah. Stumble out of bed and tumble to the kitchen, pour nope. myself a cup of ambition. <laughs> Wrong no? song. Oh, sorry. Dum 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 dum. Flash. Ah. Uh, nope. 
They're all the same now, Ian. You have a third song to add to the mix in your head. There's also a memorable scene in Nancy Meyer's The Holiday, wherein Jack Black's character nerds out over the score to this film. Have you seen this? Yeah, <gasps> Chariots of Fire loved it. Cling, 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 cling. Such a great score by Vangelis. He took electronic scores to a new level. It was groundbreaking. I'm gonna test you on this later. Cinematographer David Watkin previously lit Marasad. Catch-22, The Devils, and The Three Musketeers. We saw his work earlier this season in Endless Love, and later he DPs Return to Oz, Out of Africa, Moonstruck, Hamlet, Milk Money, and The Gloria remake. Editor Terry Rawlings previously cut Watership Down and Alien. We've seen his work on The Awakening, and he's back next to cut Blade Runner, and later Yentl, Legend, FX, Alien 3, Trapped in Paradise, Goldeneye, and The Core. Nicholas Farrell played Aubrey Montague. He was MacGyver's friend Paul Moran in MacGyver TV movie Trail to Doomsday. He's also Horatio in Branock's Hamlet. More recently, he was John Waterhouse Sr. on Gentleman Jack. Nigel Havers played Lord Andrew Lindsay. He plays William John Wills in 1985's Burke and Wills about the ill-fated Australian explorers we discussed in our Gallipoli review after they were mentioned in that film. He's Dr. Rollins in Empire of the Sun, David Niven in The Life and Death of Peter Sellers, and most recently Lester on Pamela Adlon's Better Things series. Ian Charlson played Eric Little. He's back next season as Charlie Andrews in Gandhi. Little did return to China, but died in an internment camp there of a brain tumor. During negotiations, he was supposedly given an option to leave and sent a pregnant woman in his place. So stuck to the principles. That would have been a more interesting film than this movie. Ben Cross played Harold Abrahams, he was Prince Malagant in First Night, also with Gilgood. He also appears as Sarek in Star Trek 2009. Daniel Garrell played Henry Stollard. He was Nigel in Drop Dead Fred. Ian Holm was Sam Musabini. This was his only Oscar nomination. That's incredibly surprising. Isn't that weird? He's Mr. Kurtzman in Brazil. He was Zach Braff's dad in Garden State. Cornelius in The Fifth Element, but he's probably best known for his portrayals of Ash in Alien or Bilbo Baggins in the Peter Jackson Lord of the Rings films. John Gilgood played Master of Trinity. We saw him earlier this season in the Oscar-winning role of Hobson. He co-starred in Caligula with Helen Mirren, who would take over the role of Hobson from him in the Russell Brand remake. Since Caligula, we have seen him already in The Elephant Man, The Lion in the Desert, The Formula, and Sphinx before Arthur. Lindsay Anderson played Master of Keys, mostly director credits including If, O Lucky Man, and Britannia Hospital. Nigel Davenport played Lord Birkenhead, in 1974, he was Dr. Ernest D. Hubbs in Phase 4. He's also in A Man for All Seasons and The 77 Island of Dr. Moreau. We saw him last as Peter Hartman, head of ATAC in Nighthawks. Shaka! Cheryl Campbell played Jenny Little. She was Sister Monica in Hawk the Slayer, Lady Alice Clayton in Greystoke, The Legend of Tarzan, Lord of the Apes, and more recently she shows up as Lady Brown in three episodes of Call the Midwife. Alice Krieg played Sybil Gordon, She's back soon in Ghost Story later this season, and much later she shows up in Star Trek First Contact as Borg Queen, a role she has since reprised in various Star Trek games, experiences, and even Lower Decks, the animated series. Yeah, um, it's amazing. She so often plays women in or characters in very heavy makeup, not just the Borg Queen. Oh, yeah? Um, uh, there was a... Oh God, what was it? It, was a, it wasn't Hansel and Gretel. It was the a, Witch, yeah. Gretel and Hansel. Yeah, 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 and it's like I can always tell it's her, even through the heavy makeup. It's like, oh, that's Alice Creed, Krieg in in the makeup. Yeah, because <laughs> like, it's always her in the yep. makeup. She was also Maddie on Five Deadwoods, Morgana in The Sorcerer's Apprentice, and Queen Helena in the Christmas Prince trilogy. <laughs> Most recently, she's credited as Mrs. MC in this year's Texas Chainsaw Massacre sequel or reboot or whatever it is. I haven't seen it. Dennis Christopher played Charles Paddock. The real-life inspiration for this character died shortly after the events of the film in a World War II plane crash. He was in Breaking Away, and we saw him last season in Fade to Black as Eric Binford. And as far as I know, he's the only cast member from this film who follows this podcast on Twitter, where he's very active and friendly. More recently, he made an appearance in Quentin Tarantino's Django Unchained. Brad Davis played Jackson Schultz. Before this, he was Billy Hayes in Midnight Express, and we saw him last as Leonardo da Vinci Rizzo in A Small Circle of Friends. In 1992, he was one of many actors to play themselves in Altman's The Player, 
though sadly he passed away before its release from complications related to HIV. Patrick McGee played Lord Cadogan. We've seen him so far in Rough Cut, Hawk the Slayer, and The Monster Club. But I always recognize him first for playing the stand-in for author Anthony Burgess as Mr. Alexander in A Clockwork Orange. He later reunited with Kubrick as the Chevalier du Balabari in Barry Lyndon. Peter Egan played the Duke of Sutherland. He was Frederick Moran in MacGyver Trail to Doomsday. So I think he plays the father of the Montague character in, okay. in that MacGyver TV movie. Strew and Roger played Sandy McGrath. He was originally the three-eyed raven on Game of Thrones before the role was taken over by Max von Sydow in season six. Jeremy Sinden played President Gilbert and Sullivan Society. He was gold two in Star Wars. Richard Griffiths played Head Porter Keys College. We've seen him so far in Breaking Glass, Superman 2, and French Lieutenant's Woman, and he's back later this season for Ragtime. He's best known for the Harry Potter movies or for Naked Gun 2 and a half. <laughs> As Earl Hacker. He, Gilgood, and Charlson were all reunited for the next Best Picture winner, Gandhi, the following year. John Young played Reverend J.D. Little. So I guess that might be his brother or something that, that was the trainer or... Yeah, uh, the trainer, I don't know, but the the girl was definitely his sister, right? right? Yeah, Jenny was his sister, yeah. Uh, John Young also played Reginald in Time Bandits later this season. He's also Matthias, son of Deuteronomy of Gath in Life of Brian, and dead body slash historian Frank in Monty Python and the Holy Grail. Philip O'Brien played American Coach. We saw him last season as Webb in North Sea Hijack and much later as a Mater D in Batman. Patrick Doyle played Jimmy. He is a regular co-star of Kenneth Branagh's and a composer of various Branagh films, including Henry V, Dead Again, Much Ado About Nothing, Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, Hamlet, Thor. More recently, he scored Aragon, the Sleuth remake, Brave, and most importantly, the Emoji movie. He also scored both of Branagh's Agatha Christie adaptations. David John played Ernest Little. He's back later this season as Bit Drummer in Shock Treatment. Ruby Wax played Bunty. She was the secretary of the U.S. ambassador in the final conflict earlier this season, and she's back as Betty Hapshat, also in shock treatment later this season. Most recently, she voiced Miss Hartley in Ron's Gone Wrong, that Wally ripoff from 20th Century Animation. Michael Lonsdale played Garth Jones. He has mostly French titles before this, with the recent exception of Bond outing Moonraker, where he played the spacefaring villain Hugo Drax. Yeah. After that, it's mostly French stuff I didn't recognize, but he also shows up in The Day of the Jackal, Ronin, and Munich. I was going to say, if you don't bring up Ronin, yeah. he's got su he's got such a small but important part in yeah, that he's, film. Yeah, he's really great. Kenneth Branagh played Cambridge student Society Day crowd uncredited. He was basically a gopher on set, but they needed bodies, so he has a very brief cameo. He's a hugely famous Shakespearean actor and director, He's the director and star of what most people would consider to be the definitive Hamlet and Henry V films. Lately, he's been directing and starring as Hercule Poirot in a series of Agatha Christie adaptations, beginning with Murder on the Orient Express and followed so far by A Death on the Nile and soon A Haunting in Venice, which I might actually be most excited for of all three. He was in the Harry Potter films as required by British SAG as Professor Gilderoy Lockhart. He directed the first Thor movie, he voices Miguel in The Road to El Dorado. He's Dr. Loveless in Wild Wild West and lots of other great stuff. Stephen Fry was a singer in HMS Pinafore, uncredited. He's a one-time comic partner of Hugh Laurie and star of sketch comedy series Alfresco and later Black Adder. He has appeared in films like A Fish Called Wanda, Gosford Park, and V for Vendetta. He voiced Tim Burton's Cheshire Cat and he hosted the first 13 seasons of comedy panel show QI, <laughs> which Jesse watches constantly. <laughs> Peter Ross Murray played Race Spectator. He was in Breaking Glass, Empire Strikes Back, Flash Gordon, Elephant Man, Clash of the Titans, History of the World Part 1, Raiders, and Eye of the Needle so far for us. Guy Standevin played Lord Lindsay's butler. I think that's the guy putting the champagne on each of the stands before mm. he jumps. He plays an Obi-Wan club patron in Temple of Doom. He's Santa Claus uncredited in Return to Oz. Where is Santa Claus in that movie? In Return to Oz? In Return to Oz? Santa Claus? Is he an Easter egg in Oz, or is he at the hospital at the beginning? Is there? Is it around Christmas time? I, I don't I recall. Don't, I don't think so, and I just watched it. I yeah. don't remember him at all. We've seen him so far in The Shining as a ballroom guest. He was a committee member in Elephant Man. He's a White House aide in Superman 2. He's an auction attendee in The Final Conflict, a Q branch technician in For Your Eyes Only, a gentleman pushed into a pond by Miss Piggy in, can you guess? 
the great Muppet King. That's right. And he's also a wedding guest in Eye of the Needle. He's back this season for Ragtime and Red, so he's basically in everything that shot in England this year. Those are all the credits I have for this one. I think that's everything for Chariots of Fire. If you have any thoughts you'd like to share, we are Vintage Video Pod on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, and Letterboxd. Or as I've said before, you can find each of our full movie rankings for the year. We can also be found at VintageVideoPodcast.com. We have a Discord. You can join the 24-7 movie chat and share your thoughts on episodes past, present, and future at VintageVideoPodcast.com slash Discord. And if you're listening on YouTube, don't forget to subscribe. Thank you so much for listening, and I hope you'll join us next time when we'll be discussing Galaxy of Terror, which IMDb describes like so. A ragtag spaceship crew sent on a rescue mission encounter a formidable enemy, their worst fears projected by their own imaginations. We leave you now with the trailer for Galaxy of Terror. Prepare yourself for the ultimate battle. Galaxy of Terror. Stranded astronauts Edward Albert and Erin Moran trapped in a living maze of terror on a world spawned by their darkest nightmares. It's been waiting a billion years to scare you to death. Galaxy of Terror. Get on.